I think competing for share in an existing market category where uh, the rules have been designed by somebody else is a much riskier game than creating a whole new category, designing it yourself. Hmm. Because when you're designing it yourself, you're establishing the criteria for how people should value what this whole area is really about. That's Christopher Lockhead this week on the Lean Startup Podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome and welcome back. This is the Lean Startup Podcast, a show about entrepreneurs bringing ideas to life from startups to large organizations, governments, and nonprofits. Hello and welcome to the Lean Startup Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Guest. I'm easily found online as Guesto, G-U-E-S-T-O. Just don't go searching for Christopher Guest as you'll find an altogether more funny and more successful movie maker. But regardless of that, today we'll be turning everything up to 11 with our special guest, Christopher Lockhead. Christopher, welcome. Chris, thanks for having me. And I'm, I'm a fan of, of your acting work as well as your uh, startup uh, work. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I know you're a Spinal Tap fan, so that was just for you. Um, yeah, I appreciate it. I am a huge Spinal <laughs> Tap fan. As a matter of fact, there's many things I can't remember because uh, if I rem- remembered them, it would mean forgetting some Spinal Tap lyrics. <laughs> we wouldn't want to do that. Um, and so I, I know this because I've, I've been a, a massive fan of your, of your work and your content for, for many years now and um, been listening to your show for a long time as well. And as such, I do at this point have a responsibility to advise the listeners that if you're listening with children in the car or if you are yourselves sensitive to strong language, please prepare yourself because we're here uh, to hear from some different and provocative opinions from Christopher. And as we say in, thing like, say in London, things can get a little bit tasty in the, uh, in the language department. Uh, but that's tasty. all part of I like that. A little bit tasty. Yeah. Might get a little tasty. <laughs> Might get a little tasty. So uh, I think it's certainly worth it. I hope you'll stay with us and um, hear from our guest, Christopher Lockhead, who is a three-time CMO of publicly listed companies. He's also the author of multiple best-selling books, including Play Bigger and Niche Down. And he's also a chart-topping podcaster with not one but two podcasts, uh, Follow Your Different and Lockhead on Marketing. So it's a real pleasure to have you on the show, Christopher. Thanks for joining us. I'm stoked to be here with you, Chris. Fantastic. So let's get straight into the topic of category design. And just to set the scene for for my own introduction to this and and, and why I'm so interested in it, back in 2016, I believe it was, uh, investor Mike Maples Jr. was doing a presentation for Stanford Entrepreneurial Thought Leaders. I was watching online and and his talk was called Dare to Do Legendary Things. And as part of that talk, he introduced the floodgate model of what they call the value stack, which is how they appraise the potential value of a company. And he described that they look for a company of a combination of proprietary power, business power, business model power, sorry, product power, company power, but at the top of all of it, category power as being one of the most important influences or indicators of how successful the company really could be at scale. And in that talk in 2016, he introduced what was then a new concept called category design that he'd heard about from these four crazy guys, including Christopher here, 
Um, and so tell us about category design uh, for those that are new to it. What, what is it and why is it so powerful? It's sort of a secret black art and it, it's built on top of uh, the thinking of a lot of legendary thinkers that, that came before. Um, but essentially what it is, is it is one skill to compete for share in an existing market category. And when most people say marketing, what they're really saying is, how do we compete with a better brand, product, service, business model, something? How do we compete for share in an existing market category? That's what most people say when they, what, what most people mean when they say marketing. And I'll take it a step further. Most people never question that that's what they mean when they say marketing. And so I would assert to you, Chris, that that's one skill. Then there's this other skill that is, um, we're the people designing the category. We're the people that are creating a new way of thinking about an opportunity or a problem in a new way to open people up to something uh, that's a new possibility. And as a result of doing that, um, we are going to proactively position ourselves as the designer, the creator, uh, and therefore the de facto standard in this new carbodingulation market category. Um, that's very different. And so there is a distinction between fighting for share with a better strategy and creating new markets with a different strategy. And fundamentally, category design is about being the company that gets, you know, if you think about uh, Mike and Ann's uh, sort of hierarchies of power, category right because the company that designs the space is best positioned to dominate it. And further to that, we know, and we could talk about the data science re research behind it, um, but we know that the category queen takes, earns 76% of all of the economics in the category. Economics is defined by, by the total market cap of all the companies in the category. Um, so one company takes two thirds of the economics, takes two thirds of the value. And so the game, particularly in business in general, but I would say in particular in the technology startup world, the game is, can we be the company that designs and dominates a giant market category and creates um, enduring value for all of our stakeholders over a long period of time? because those are the companies that matter. Those are the companies that make an exponential difference. Those are the companies that are valued both economically and on other dimensions uh, in the world. And so, and, and so that's the game. And so the, the thinking is all about how do we teach the world to think about this problem or idea in exactly the way we do so that they're open up to a whole new way of doing things and a new category is created and we position ourselves to become the category queen and take two thirds of the economics. That's a very different conversation than um, how do we make sure there's a good demo on our website so that people can see that our carbodingulator is 2x faster than theirs. Mm -hmm. So one thing that you mentioned in the book is that um, consumers, well, in fact, humans of any form can't resist thinking about products and services in categories. 
if I was to tell you, hey, have you seen the new Volvo XC90? You might say, well, what is that? Is that an SUV or a sedan? The category helps you understand the product and it helps you position the product. And one thing you say in the book is that because customers will inevitably put you in a category, you need to define the category for them. Otherwise, they'll put you in someone else's category and compare you to the king or queen of that category. Is that, is that right? Absolutely. Uh, you know, there's a, there's a mantra in the book, position yourself or be positioned. Yeah. Right? If we don't tell people how to think about us, look, here's one of my favorite examples. Who's the greatest boxer of all time? Muhammad Ali. And the reason you say that, and by the way, I say that, and if you're a real boxing expert, you know, this is a debate and he probably isn't number one, right? But the, the vast majority of us are going to say he is. And here's at least in part why, at least part of why he said so <laughs> over and over again. He said, I am the greatest over and over again. And um, so he positioned himself as such. And of course, he did back it up with his performance. So his product backed up his positioning, his category design, if you will, um, and so I'm not saying the two can be divorced, far from it. I'm a huge fan of legendary products. But Muhammad Ali told us that over and over and over again, and so we parrot it back. <laughs> yeah. And so what are some of your other favorite examples, thinking about businesses and products that have created category that, that you think helps folks understand this concept of uh, category design through some popular examples? Yeah, I'll give you one of my favorites, and I just had occasion to um, meet Mark Randolph. My favorite is Netflix, and Mark is um, the uh, original founding CEO, and um, he's written this great book that I highly, highly recommend. Uh, it's either called That Won't Work or This Won't Work, but it's the founding story of, of Netflix, and uh, Mark Randolph, he's, he's, he's unfucking believable and what I love about Mark is he's very candid about the truth. Because a lot of people, you know, when you read the fortune cover story about like fill in the blank successful entrepreneur, you know, there's this thing about like, oh, yes, and I slayed all the dragons and I jumped the moat by myself and I scaled the building and I, you know, killed the bad guy and saved the princess and slayed the dragon and got, you know, and it's all ridiculous. And so um, um, one of the things that he shares is, you know, this thing almost went away for 50 million bucks. They were hemorrhaging money and they tried to sell it to Blockbuster. And Blockbuster literally laughed them out of the room. And so he's telling me this story, Chris. And then after they get laughed out of the room and they're desperate, the thing is, you know, in a lot of trouble because it, it worked, but it scaled so much it was capital intensive and they couldn't raise money. You're talking about DVD by mail at the time. Yes, yes. Right, right. Uh, this was after a bunch of floundering around, by the way, I, I believe several years of floundering, but then they nailed it with that and then they scaled, but then they couldn't afford their success was killing them. <laughs> so uh, the CEO of Blockbuster laughs them out of the room and they get back on the plane and Mark turns to Reed Hastings, who's now, of course, the CEO, done an unbelievable job um, and says, well, I guess we're going to have to take them out. <laughs> But now here's the thing. Here's the thing that most people, when they look at a story like that, most people look at it the following way. Um, Blockbuster won because they had a better product, in this case, service. 
and they had, and I'm going to use the words most people use, disruptive innovation called the internet. And they were a first mover. And so they had a better per service. They were disruptive with technology and they were a first mover. Um, those things are all debatable, I think. I think those are subject to interpretation. Um, but let's say you give them all that. Let's say that's absolutely right. I would posit to you that's not what made them successful. Those things are interesting. They may have contributed. There's some value in some of those things, but those things are way overvalued. And um, the thing, here's what's not understood. What Mark and Reed and the team did was they taught the world how to think about the acquisition of entertainment completely differently. They thought about the problem from a different lens and therefore they created a complete different lens solution. And what they did was they did not compete with Blockbuster. They had a provocative point of view about how this experience of the consumption of media should be. And it was not incrementally better. It was exponentially different. That was the argument they needed to make. And so via this point of view about why using this technology and DVDs in the mail in the beginning and of course streaming today and everywhere has evolved since then that we all understand uh, was worthy of changing your behavior and going from driving to a store, picking the shit up, da, 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 coming home, that whole experience that we all remember to this, this different approach called go to a website and then have the experience. They had to teach the world how to think about this fundamentally differently. Mm. And so I would argue that they were not incrementally better. They were exponentially different. And they designed a new category of how you and I now consume media. And they've evolved that design over time very successfully. Um, and so they didn't compete. They didn't play a comparison game. They wanted, like all legendary entrepreneurial companies, others to be compared to them, not them to be compared to others. Mm. And so they literally changed the game. They didn't, they sh everybody thought we were playing soccer. They showed up and said, sorry, we're playing hockey. And now you guys are screwed, right? And they taught the world how to think about things differently. And as it scaled, the rest is history. And the one other thing, we can talk about this if you like. Um, we've been doing a lot of research lately, me and my, um, my buddy Eddie Yoon, on the power of a data flywheel in the context of building a category queen, uh, a category dominating company. We can talk about that element of, of um, Netflix as well if you like. But fundamentally, that's it. And so my point is, most companies, most entrepreneurs, most marketers fall into a competition trap, which fundamentally is a comparison game. And you can see this every time you turn on your TV and you see an ad for a local car dealer. They're all exactly the same. Come on down. We have the great new inventory. We will not be undersold. We have the service. We have the selection. Come on down this weekend. Da -da -da -da. They all say exactly the same thing. They're all, you could just change the logo on all of them and they're completely indistinguishable. And they're, they're having a comparison 
uh, fundamentally a, a race to the bottom price conversation. Um, that's not what Netflix does. That's not what legendary companies do. They design a whole new way of thinking. And when that happens, when the world agrees with you at scale, now you have something. Yeah. Well, I've uh, had a go at explaining category design to many colleagues, investors, partners over the years. And the favorite, my favorite example, if I may share, is that I think helps people really get it is actually Dyson. Because if you think back to the early, early 90s, not a single consumer was going around to themselves thinking that they had a problem with the bag in their vacuum cleaner because it was never been any other way. They could never imagine it any other way. And so every vacuum cleaner company was competing on the axes of like suction power and length of cord and flashing lights or whatever else. And what Dyson did is he came along and he said, listen, everything you hate about your vacuum cleaner is because of the bag. The bag is why it loses suction over time. It's messy. You drop it when you go to change it. It just sucks. You don't want a vacuum cleaner with a bag. You need a vacuum cleaner without a bag. And everyone's like, that, that's a good point. I never thought of it like that before. But yeah, where, where do I get a vacuum cleaner with a bag, without a bag? And so then he creates the category of a bagless vacuum cleaner, becomes the dominant king of that category. And of course, now all vacuum cleaners are compared to Dyson. He is the king of that. And, and, and I just think that's the most brilliant example because as you put in the book, everything comes back to a central point of view and the person and explaining to consumers or to your customers why they have the problem they do. And, and tell us a little bit about the, the point that you make in the book about the person who best explains the problem is best placed to own the solution. Speak a little <laughs> bit more about that. I don't know if you've had this experience in life, Chris. Uh, I, I, I just had it. I just, I just found out yesterday my, on my left knee, uh, is the plural of meniscus menisci? <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> anyway, I have a very effed up left knee, and I got the I got the MRI back, and I apparently I have a menisci situation. Um, but I digress. If you've ever had a um, a medical situation going on that was complex to diagnose, and you had to run around town and meet with a bunch of specialists, have you ever had anything like that kind of experience? There's this moment where you walk into this doctor's office. And she asks you a couple questions or she pokes you or she does whatever she does. And she essentially articulates your problem. She says, well, you know, does it hurt this? And you're having experiencing it and you're like, and she's, she's, she's essentially telling you how your life has been since, since this problem arises. And all of a sudden there's this, there's this uh, relief that washes over your body because you're like, oh, fuck, finally somebody gets what's going on here. And, and, and the reason we have that experience is that we connect the dots, right? That is to say, the person who can articulate our problem the best must have the solution. If the doctor is, t is playing back to me this thing that nobody else has heretofore even understood, you make the connection that this must be a doctor who can specialize in helping this knee condition or whatever it is you're experiencing, right? And so it's like that uh, for us in the domain of buying anything. And the more complex it is, the more of a relief it is when you meet the person, right? Like I've, um, uh, I've had a seven year problem with home technology, stereo, Sonos, blah, blah, blah. And we've had, I don't know, three or four different, you know, sets of jokers in here to try to make all this stuff work. 
And of course, it's all it's fucked up all the time, right? <laughs> and remotes and like you name it, right? And so finally we met the guy. And it was obvious. It was just obvious in 10 minutes that this was the guy. And of course, he came in, he did his thing, and the stuff's been amazing ever since. And so there's that experience that we're all looking for. And sometimes it can be on something complex, and sometimes it can be something as simple as, um, you know, one of my favorites of late, the sushi rito. Right? They solved a very simple problem, which is how do I eat sushi on the go? Oh, I combine sushi and the idea of a burrito. Ta-da, the sushi-rito, a new category of sushi designed to solve the problem. How do I eat sushi on the go? Because if you love sushi, when you want to eat on the go, it doesn't really work. Yeah. <laughs> they solve the problem. Yeah. And you can then see those, those categories all over the place now, like craft beer is a new category that didn't exist before. And, and one of the uh, examples I think explains the point very well in a business to business or enterprise scenario is, is, is your story about Benioff and, and um, Salesforce and cloud computing versus on-premise. Could you give us a little summary of that story? Because I think that helps folks understand it as well. Yeah, I think today it can be very easy to, because all this stuff in retrospect makes all the sense in the world looking back at it, right? But if you look at Benioff and the achievement that the cloud is, it really is an extraordinary um, outcome. Because if you go back to 1998, 1999, um, here's how it worked. You wanted to buy this thing called CRM to help improve your customer service and improve your sales. Okay, great. Uh, you bought it from this company called Siebel Systems, who was the category queen, category king in the space. And you did what everybody did, which is you spent lots of money on it and you installed it in your servers and you had a data center and you had to buy giant sun boxes and all this technology and security, all this stuff, right? Uh, and you ran it on your own and uh, uh, you modified it. And once you modified it, you probably weren't going to be able to upgrade it. So you kind of had to live with it forever. And then you paid 15 to 20% maintenance in perpetuity. And, and that's how it worked. And it was your application. You owned it. You had the data. You had the databases. You had the servers. You had the network. You had blah, 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 the whole thing, right? And you ran the whole shooting match. And then this guy named Mark Benioff comes over and says, hey, uh, I got an idea for you. How about this? You don't own it. You just rent it. And um, you know all that data about your customers, your salespeople, your territories, your products, and oh yeah, your forecast? You don't have any of that either. We'll just run all that for you and you'll just log on to a website and we'll pay you to do that. It was a 180 degree different than the entire way that the entire industry worked for decades. And then he had the brains and the balls to say, no software. Software company saying no software. And he started evangelizing the problem with the old model and the power of this new model that he was evangelizing. And um, as a result of doing that, he and I would, I would say, uh, I think Mark Andreessen deserves a lot more credit for the cloud than he ever gets, by the way. Um, we can talk about why if you care, but Benioff, Andreessen, and a handful of others. But Benioff, loud and proud, right, and, and consistent, evangelizes this different. And almost single-handedly, 
uh, changes the entire business model and technology stack of the entire industry in a 180 degree way that at the time, the idea of you having all that shit and me not owning it as a customer, that was not gonna fly. People say, there's no bank in the world that's gonna do this. There's no insurance company in the world that's going to do this. There's no pharma company in the world that's going to do this. There's no manufacturing, on and on and on. There's no way. And here we are. That's category design. That's moving the world from the way it is to the way you want it to be. It's radical differentiation. Um, And the other thing that he did that's very important that is often misunderstood, all legendary category designers reframe the way it is today, so that with their point of view, they can move the category from the way it is to the way they want it to be. And in the case of Benioff, the actual genius of what he did was, yes, cloud, uh, yes, cloud CR, yes, all the stuff that everybody points to, no software as a point of view, genius, yes, yes, yes. But here's the one that most people forget. The creation of the phrase on-premise software. And the genius of on-premise software was, first of all, nobody ever called it that. That's just how it was. Second of all, he didn't do what most idiots do when they're playing a comparison game, which is they just sort of shit on their competition. He named their category in a functionally, technically accurate way. There's nothing pejorative on the surface of on-premise software. It's technically, functionally accurate. And then he started to drive, we call them Frodo's, from twos, the world from the way it used to be on-premise software to the cloud. But he needs to establish on-premise before he can establish cloud, right? And then no software is the point of view, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, And then here's the genius. He then imbues technically functionally correct language with strong negative meaning. He makes it bad. He makes it stupid. He makes it economically uh, unjustifiable. On and on and on. He just keeps heaping argument after argument after argument for why on-premise makes no sense. And in the beginning, 99.9% of the world says, you're out of your mind. Mm. Starting with Siebel Systems, right? A company that was, at one point in time, the fastest growing uh, company in American history, according to Forbes, if I'm not mistaken. I mean, they, they were a no-joke company. But again, just like in the Netflix example, Benioff doesn't compete with Salesforce or with, with uh, uh, Siebel per se. He competes with the idea of on-premise CRM software. Mm. And, and by actually doing on-premise so, software overall, right? Yeah. And by doing so, you wrap up all of the competitors in one go without needing to name them individually. Uh, in the same way that Dyson doesn't need to ho- uh, to name Hoover or Electrolux or Panasonic or anyone else, it's just there's only two categories, right? The the category the, the category of companies that do agree with your point of view and those that don't. That's right. Yeah. And you make you make the way it is the old way, and, and so you're you're not attacking a competitor. You're attacking an old way of thinking, an old way of doing things, right? Um, uh, this is the genius of Henry Ford the horseless carriage. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. And now to your point on Dyson, people could say, oh, well, you know, he just, he just 
added a new feature called no bag. Well, that, that's true. I'll give you that. I would call it more than a feature. I would call it a product innovation, but however you want to call it, that's fine. But the thing that most people don't do that Dyson did do is teach the world why the new spec for a vacuum cleaner must be bagless. In the B2B space, this is called writing the RFP for the whole market category, right? If you're in the B2B space, you know what we all know, which is there's two kinds of companies. There's the company that, uh, uh, there's the company helping the customer write the RFP, and then there's all the companies that respond to the RFP. And if you're not the one helping to write it, you're probably hosed on the deal, right? Category design fundamentally is writing the RFP for the market category. And so what Dyson does is they don't attack a competitor. They attack an old way of doing things. And they say, to quote the big Lebowski, you know, a bag in a, um, in a uh, vacuum, this aggression will not stand, man, right? Just like Benioff says, on-premise software, this aggression will not stand, man. And, and they, they rail against the old way of doing things and they make the purveyors of the old way uh, evil and bad <laughs> without ever having to talk about them. Right, right. And so this is um, for, for folks listening that are not marketers. Could you summarize uh, what is traditional market positioning and, and why is this so different? So traditional marketing, traditional positioning, traditional branding, uh, PR communications, all, all of the components of marketing in the biggest sense of the word sit inside this context that we're competing for share. And, and, and that how we're doing that is we're comparing. We know the consumer is going to compare. So we're going to tell them why when they compare us to the bad guys, um, we're the better answer. And here's why it fundamentally doesn't work. And um, this company might be the biggest, dumbest, or the, the dumbest big company in marketing history. Um, and that's Pepsi. And here's why. Right now they have an ad going that they started at uh, this past year's Super Bowl with Steve Carroll or Carell, the comedic actor, the office guy, he's fantastic. And he's sitting in a diner, Chris. And um, um, he's got his back to this gal and the server comes over and the gal says to the server, um, um, can I have a, um, can I have a Coke please? And the server says, we don't have Coke, we have Pepsi. Is Pepsi okay? That's what the server says to the gal who orders. And then Steve Carell, who's on, with his back sitting to the gal who ordered, sort of pops up and says, is Pepsi okay? Are rainbows and unicorns okay? Is a beautiful spring day? And he goes on and on and on and on and on. Um, so Pepsi's been doing this idiotic comparison marketing for decades and decades and decades. And here's why it's idiotic. You ready? Mm -hmm. Don't think about Coke. Think about Pepsi. Don't, whatever you do, don't think about Coke. Do not think about Coke. Pepsi tastes better than Coke. As a matter of fact, four out of five people say Pepsi tastes better than Coke. What are you thinking about? Coke. Yes. Yeah. That's what virtually every company does. My other favorite example of this, we put it in niche down because I just, it makes me laugh every time, 
is the uh, scene from Something About Mary when uh, Stiller picks up this, this guy who's a psycho killer played by a hysterical comedian named Harlan Williams. If you ever get a chance to go see him, he's fantastic. And, uh, and so they get to talking and Stiller sort of says to him, you know, kind of, hey, what's your plan in life or whatever? I forget exactly what he says to him, but they're talking about his future and his stuff. And he says, well, here's my plan. You know that infomercial, eight minute abs? I'm coming out with seven minute abs. <laughs> and then Stiller looks at him and says, well, you know, that might be a good idea, but what happens when someone comes out with six minute abs? And the vast majority of companies, of marketers, of CEOs, of entrepreneurs are playing a six minute abs game. That's not what Sarah Blakely did when she created Spanx. She created a whole new category, right? With a great category name as well. Yes, one of the most legendary. And again, names the brand and the category differently, right? Uh, look, girdles have been around forever, right? Centuries. Well, she doesn't call it a girdle 2.0. She, she refuses to acknowledge the existence of what came before because she declares her thing a, quote, new invention. <laughs> mm -hmm. Right? And therefore, it needs a name. And of course, that name is? Shapewear. Pure genius. Yeah. And, and the fundamental argument of category design and category thinking is that um, the category makes the brand, not the other way around. Everybody was, oh, well, you, Aaron Bakley built an amazing brand with banks. Well, yes, but, and it's a very big but, the category is why the brand is valuable. The fact that it's a multi-billion dollar new category inside the mega category of undergarments that she designed and she, in a lot of ways, category design is, is radical differentiation, right? She radically differentiated her quote unquote new invention from control top pantyhose. Because that's a category. Right. Now, look, I don't know. I don't own any of these products. Okay. Well, actually I do because I'm married to a female person, but none of them fit me, but I guess that's a whole other conversation. Um, but who the hell wants to buy control top pantyhose? Right. But shapewear, now we could have some shapewear, right? It's the reason that, um, we now call them pre-owned vehicles and they used to be called used cars. Mm -hmm. That's category design. It's change a demarcation point in language, creates a demarcation point in thinking, which creates a demarcation point in action, purchasing, consumption, and behavior, right? And so when we say they're not used cars, they're pre-owned cars, it does change people's thinking. Hmm. Okay, so an entrepreneur is uh, struck by uh, a vision of seeing the world a different way to how everyone else sees it. They formulate their point of view and define the market in terms of products that do agree with their point of view and products that don't. And they market the problem before they market the solution. And by being the person that best understands the problem, they then attract people that have that problem and become the king or queen of their new category. So I think this is what we're going to do here is we're going to pause there on kind of the basics of, of category design. Um, because I want to recommend everybody that if this sounds interesting to buy the book, uh, which is called Play Bigger. Um, more specifically, it's Play Bigger, how 
pirates, dreamers, and innovators create and dominate markets. You'll find it easily on, on Amazon and, and also on Audible. Um, and I want to get instead to try and cover some new ground um, and talk about some things which I've, I've not heard you uh, answer about um, about category design before. But actually, before we do that, um, I think was it three years ago now that you published the book? Yeah, you have a great memory. It yeah. came out three years ago. So in the three years that have elapsed since, how have your opinions changed about category design? And, and would you say it's more or less relevant now than it was at the time that you wrote it? Well, you know, that's sort of like asking someone if their kid's getting better looking or worse looking. <laughs> so, I think it's, it's a lot more relevant, but, but my opinion on it is, is, is less important. What is uh, more important are the facts. Um, and the facts are, and I, you know, it's probably not appropriate to get into names and all that sort of stuff, but you know, there are many top tier venture capitalists in Silicon Valley who have a stack of these things in their office or their lobby. I get emails and LinkedIn's from entrepreneurs who said, you know, I, I was just in fill in the blank, uh, you know, no, no, no bullshit, serious VC office. And, um, and the partner I was meeting with said, you got to read play bigger. And so I think we're at a point now where, and I've actually been criticized for this, this is some, some, I've gotten some hate on LinkedIn and Twitter for this, that people saying stuff like, you know, VC saying, if I hear one more fucking company come in here telling me they're designing a new category, I'm going to, you know, and, and I say, hey, 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 I, like, don't blame me. <laughs> but I think we're now at a point where if um, certainly in the Silicon Valley world, if you're a startup looking to get funded by a top tier VC and you can't kind of come in and articulate a category strategy that massively differentiates you, you um, and, and, and sort of makes you the agenda setter in a giant space that matters such that you are positioning to uh, take the vast majority of the economics, that's going to be a discussion. Um, and will they have a marketing discussion? Absolutely. And might they have a discussion on customer acquisition costs and you know, all sorts of other things? For sure they might and, 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 and very often do. But it would be unusual today um, for a startup having conversation with a serious venture capital firm, at least in the technology world, to not be expected to understand category design at some level. And so I, I, that has happened. And I'm, um, I, I mean, I couldn't be more knocked over by that and, and uh, stoked about it because my primary motivation was this was not a conversation that was happening anymore. You know, um, people don't know who David Ogilvy is. People don't know who Al Reese and Jack Trout are. You know, they're not reading those books anymore. Um, and those of us who read those books and many others, of course, um, because there's a lot on positioning, there's a lot on branding, there's, a, there's a, of course, a lot on marketing itself, and, and, and there's a little on category. Um, but for the most part, uh, it wasn't a conversation anybody was having, point A. Point B, my big concern, Chris, was people authentically believe that the best product wins. Like they believe in it like they believe in the availability of oxygen. It doesn't get questioned. The, you know, the reason Google won, they had the better algorithm. Uh, and so 
there's this praying at the altar of products. Now, look, I love legendary products. Build legendary products. I love them. Go. Yes. I'm not in any way, shape, or form saying having legendary products or services uh, aren't critical. Of course, they're critical. I think they're more critical now than ever. Um, that said, um, the most legendary product ever invented could not speak for itself. And uh, almost never got used for its primary use case. Which and was? so I would argue that the most legendary product ever created was the wheel. Mm. And do you know how long it took for the wheel to be used for transportation? I have no idea. 300 years. Huh. What was it before that? It was invented for pottery. Oh. And it spun the other way in between your legs and you made pots. And 300 years after the creation of the wheel, a couple of folks got together with a, uh, a big bottle of Jack Daniels and a giant bag of weed. And somebody looked at it and said, hey, if we tilt this thing, we might really have something here. Um, and so my argument is if the most legendary product in the world if it took 300 years to accidentally discover its, its primary use case, I would assert to you that your legendary product and why you believe it's so legendary and so important, so critical and so valuable um, cannot speak for itself. You must speak for it the way Muhammad Ali spoke for himself, point A. Point B, if you don't radically differentiate it from everything that came before, you will get compared to everything that came before. Mm -hmm. And the breakthroughs of the future do not sit inside of the thinking and the paradigms of the past. And so the more you believe you have a breakthrough technology, a breakthrough innovation, a breakthrough approach, breakthrough new, new way of thinking about pizza, I don't care what it is, the degree to which you think it's exponentially um, a step forward, I believe, is the degree to which you have to radically differentiate it such that you become the de facto standard in the new thing. You know, we just had Heidi uh, Roizen on my podcast, and she is an investor in Memphis Meats, and they are pioneering a new category called cell-based meat. It's radically different. Grow your own meat, right? And they, are, they have a provocative point of view about why um, this is the future of meat. Now, I don't know if they're right. I don't know if they're wrong. Part of me thinks it's weird. Part of me thinks it's cool. I have no idea, like I think probably a lot of us. But what I do know is they're out there building this category because if you want to sell Bibles, there's got to be Christians, and so you have to take a position if you're Memphis Meats that this is the future of food and you got to try this stuff and, 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 and they're trying to move the entire category from living animals to cell-based meat. It's a giant Frodo. It's akin to what Henry Ford did with the horseless carriage, right? Mm -hmm. He moved the entire transportation paradigm. That's what they're trying to do here in food. Is it going to work? I don't know. But what I do know is they're being intentional about evangelizing this radically different kind of meat. And that's whether it's Dyson 
or, or, or Sarah Blakely or Henry Ford, that's what you're doing when you're pioneering uh, a whole new way of thinking about something and positioning yourself proactively as the leader, as the category queen or king of that thing. Yeah. And one thing that's interesting there that might be counterintuitive to some is that they're by no means claiming a category of which they are the only competitor because they're not, right? There's Beyond Meat, there's various others, but they're not comparing themselves to those other players in their category. Instead, are they trying to be the best at labeling the problem? and moving the most people to the ne- to the new categories is that the game here yeah it's 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 exactly the game right uh because the first person that i hear about a new thing from or in this case the first company that i hear about a new thing from i assume is the shit mm. right that's 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 why being an evangelist matters mm. makes right? sense that, that's why mark benioff um, is such a legendary entrepreneur. I mean, there's lots of reasons, of course, but like he's an extraordinary evangelist. Sarah Blakely, an extraordinary evangelist. Hmm. So even if, for example, I, I don't know if it's true, but even if Benioff didn't invent the word cloud, it almost doesn't matter. If he's labeled the problem the best and has labeled the future the best, then he can then you know, benefit from, from the understanding and advocacy of his audience. Well, look, I live in Santa Cruz, California, and one of my entrepreneurial heroes is here, um, although he passed away a few years ago, Jack O'Neill. And the O'Neill company is the category leader in wetsuits. Well, the reason that's true is because what most people say is that Jack is the inventor of the wetsuit. That's what most people say. To the best I can tell, he's not the inventor of the wetsuit. What he is, is he's the guy that made the wetsuit work in surfing and popularized it. He was the first to get the wetsuit to tip as an idea. And then of course, as a product and then a a product category with lots of competitors in it. Right. Hmm. And when Jack was still alive, when he was out and around town and people saw him, the appropriate acknowledgement of Jack was not good morning or hello or any of that. It was thanks, Jack. (laughs) Right. And so the category queen doesn't shit on competition. The category queen is evangelizing the category. This is the genius of Elon Musk. Musk gave away the patents. He gave away the patents. We live at a time when a lot of companies say uh, in the technology world, the most important thing is patents. Musk gave them away because of exactly this principle, Chris. He, He knew that in order for electric cars to tip at scale, if this thing is going to work, there's got to be a bunch of people winning. There's got to be a bunch of competitors, right? And so um, my friends at Splunk invited me to their um, annual user conference in Vegas a little bit ago here. And while I was there, I got to see a team from um, Porsche demonstrating the new electric charging. um, uh, I'm going to forget the name of the car now, but it's, Tycan, thank you. And it's incredibly impressive. And the thing is going to be unbelievable. And the minute you see, see one, you want one. And, you know, it, it's incredible. It's awesome. And, and the likely, and, you know, the waiting, I think there's 250,000 people. On, I don't know, some number. I mean, whatever it is, right? The thing's a massive hit. It's not even out, right? It's, it, it's, and so, but Musk understands he needs them, right? Hmm. 
So and you, by the way, he's convinced them that they got to come or their business isn't going to go, right? That he's convinced the competition that, that electric is the future, just like Benioff can convince the competition, the cloud's the future. Yeah, absolutely. So um, when in the life of a, a business or, or an idea for a business, should an entrepreneur do category design? Is this something that should be done at the very first kernel of an idea or only at a certain point of maturity or product market fit or what? Uh, look, if you don't have it, get on it. <laughs> um, but in an ideal scenario, it happens in the beginning in the startup phase. And then uh, here's the next time it happens. And I, I've, I've grown to love this um, as much as the startup phase. And in, I was going to say it's more rewarding. It's, it's different rewarding. It, it, the, so, so the next time to do it other than the startup phase is uh, when you become the category queen. You know, when you wake up one day and you go, hey, shit, um, we're six or seven years in, whatever it is. Um, we pioneered this space. Um, we're the, the clear market leader. Uh, our growth rate is faster than everyone else. Our category share is higher than everyone else. Our valuation or market cap is higher than, you know, we won. What most people do here is have a party. And by all means, have a party. Celebrate. You won. By all means, milk the cow. You know, look, uh, Microsoft Office has been the category queen for 30 years. And I think Microsoft has done a wonderful job of transitioning that shit to the cloud. They really got it right. It might be obvious. It might not look like a big innovation, but um, the reason ServiceNow and Workday exist is because the category kings in, in the prior technology area didn't make the transition, right? That's why they exist, right? It's, it's HR and financials. We had that. <laughs> they were all yeah. client server based and most of them didn't make the switch, right? ServiceNow is a help desk. None of the client server help desk vendors made the switch. So the fact that Microsoft made the switch is incredible. But um, that said, long story longer, it's a 30-year category queen, and they have like 90% share. And so by all means, continue to um, uh, milk that cow and serve the category uh, for infinity if you can. And you've got to ask yourself what's next. Mm. You got to look at how you set the agenda and take it forward in, in a whole new direction. You, you, you can't sit there forever. Right. Mm -hmm. And so when people talk about, I think the disservice, the unintended consequence of, of um, innovators dilemma and this notion of disruption is for the most part, when people are talking about that stuff, they talk about it in the context of a product service or technology uh, paradigm. Oh, well, you know, Kodak failed because um, they didn't do any disruptive innovation. This would be the kind of phrase you'd hear a lot today, right? Well, it's great to have a legendary breakthrough product. But if you don't do the category design that goes with it, you leave it up to chance that the world's going to figure this thing out. Hmm. So category design and a lot of your content, in, in fact, even the, the name of your podcast is all focused on being proud to be different and standing for something and having a point of view. And so is category design itself also not for everyone? 
and is there a type of person entrepreneur or business that shouldn't be uh practicing category design or maybe even it's less relevant to i think if you think there's no need to distinguish or differentiate your business and or yourself then there's no requirement to do this hmm. if you are comfortable with outsourcing um, the way people think about you and the criteria by which you are measured, and we all are as individuals and as companies or brands, um, then you shouldn't do it. Yeah. You know, the other one I'll just say, I'll just tell you the truth on this too. Um, if you don't have any balls, you shouldn't do this. It takes a tremendous amount of courage to stand up and say, um, it's, it's all, it's like this now, but it's going to be this whole other way in the future. And fundamentally entrepreneurs, and I would say creative people of any kind, because entrepreneurship is an act of creation. It's an mm -hmm. act of bringing forward something from nothing. In, 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 and in many, if not most cases in, in the face of, almost no evidence that it's going to work in the face of re massive resistance. So in a very real way, entrepreneurs are the creators who slay the cynicism of our times with their dreams. And you have to be willing to stand up for your dream and teach the world how to think about things in a new way. If you're Memphis meets, you have to stand up and say, this aggression will not stand. We cannot feed the world this way anymore. The traditional approach is horrible for all these reasons, and this is the future. You have to say that, or it's never going to happen. For Henry Ford to be successful, he had to convince the federal government to create the highway system. That's outrageous behavior, hmm. right? Elon Musk is outrageous. He's radically nuts right? There's a fine line between clever and stupid, spinal tap, right? <laughs> and so you ha it's, it's audacious to think that you as an individual or you as a company and a brand can change something in a meaningful way, right? In a positive way, you can do something exponential with your life, with your career, with your company, with your technology, with your brand, with your product, with your service. That's an audacious, a radically audacious uh, place to stand. And so you have to be willing to stand in that place. And the vast majority of entrepreneurs and CEOs are not willing to stand in that place in the face of no evidence, because there might be a, a meaningful period of time where you look like an absolute moron because there is no demand for this thing. As a matter of fact, there's, there's negative demand. There's demand for the way it used to be, not the way you want it to be. And so uh, you can't do lead generation. When you demo it, people don't get it. That's, that's a hard place to stand. Yeah. Yeah. One of the uh, pushbacks I hear most frequently about uh, practicing category design is that long time or, or, or career vets in sort of branding and advertising always tell me, don't spend time and money talking about what you're not. Spend time and money talking about what you are. Now, I think several decades ago, that was probably good advice if you weren't doing something fundamentally new. So let's say that, you know, I've opened a new winery 
in Napa and I'm making a new Napa cab, then maybe all I do need to say is that we're family owned, we've got this much, whatever else. And we talk about what we are. But if I want to create a new sparkling wine from, say, Sweden, <laughs> you need to kind of create the category of why people need Swedish sparkling wine and why it might be different to, say, champagne or Prosecco or, or, or whatever else. People don't generally see a brand new category. They don't understand something that doesn't exist. And as you said, you know, ride sharing for all of the category power or the category value of ride sharing now had zero value before somebody created it. And, and I think even organic food, you know, before people, before people started evangelizing the need for organic food, nobody was buying it. So there's no, no obvious signal that the category needed to exist right so maybe it's like the more um the more disruptive or the more discontinuous your innovation is the more essential that it is that you that you do practice category design yes the more exponential it is the more category design is required and i, I want to go back to this thing about the marketing experts to tell you you should mark market what you are what, what do they say they uh, don't these. spend time and money don't spend time and money explaining what you're not. Focus on what you are. Yeah. Well, first of all, I think most marketing experts are idiots. Um, <laughs> it is very powerful to understand who you're not for. And legendary marketers do marketing that force a choice, not a comparison. One of my favorite marketers in the world is Max Temkin, and he's the co-founder of Cards Against Humanity. And they are outrageous. And one thing they're clear about, who they're not for. And if you can't sit around the you know, Thanksgiving dinner and, and have, a, have your mother-in-law ask you a very weird question about what a horrible thing is that she's never heard of, you're, this is the wrong, you know, it's called Cards Against Humanity for fuck's sakes, right? And so I think it's actually very powerful to know who you're not for. Right, you made a comment uh, off the top about my my. What was the word you used? Was it tasty language? <laughs> uh, yeah, things can get a bit tasty. Tasty, yeah. If tasty language is not okay with you, I get it. It's fine. But like, you and I are probably not going to be friends. And I don't mean that in a shitty way. But like, you know, and I, I've had people, very smart media people, say to me, "Well, you know, Christopher." If you stop swearing on your podcast, you would increase your listener audience by easily 25%. And, and you, you know what my response is. <laughs> Go fuck yourself, right? <laughs> and so, listen, I think knowing who you're not for is taking a position is a very powerful thing because it forces a choice, not a comparison. Comparisons are hard, right? Hmm. Um, the, 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 the choice, Hey, what do you feel like for dinner tonight, Chris? Um, Italian or, uh, or, or Chinese, right? That's a choice. Mm -hmm. If I say, Oh, well, there's, you know, there's two Italian restaurants, uh, around that are good here. Mama Mia's and, you know, Papa Mia's, <laughs> um, <laughs> You know, now we're now you're going to say, okay, well, you know, which one do you like better? And we talk about price, or do they have you know do they have a reservation? You know, you start doing the thing, which is the comparison thing. But first, you've got to go uh, by the, the category is the container, hmm. right? That's why the category makes the brand. If you don't care about muscle cars, you don't care 
that there's a extraordinary new um, Mustang coming out this year. Mm-hmm. And does category design always have to be anti-establishment? Does it always have to push against the whole system or just other products? And the, the reason I ask that is I think I've been, I think it's interesting when you look at the direct to consumer movement of brands, a lot of them have differentiated themselves by pushing back against the establishment. So, you know, don't buy your mattress from a mattress store or, um, you know, razor companies screw you and the aisles in Walgreens for razor blades and all that sort of thing. And that's fine because it helps move people towards their new world. But a lot of these companies have now had to rejoin the establishment and go into those stores and be sold by Target and everything else. And does it therefore need to be the case that they take the teeth out of their point of view or or would you advocate that they still continue to push back um, with that strong point of view? So look, I'm drawn to, you know, in the book we call them pirates, dreamers, and innovators, right? And I love that old um, Steve Jobs quote, you know, why join the Navy when you can be a pirate, right? <laughs> um, uh, so, you know, that, that's fun. Uh, so I'm drawn to those types of brands um, and the companies that are creating categories with that sort of attitude. But that's more of a branding and voice choice. You know, so for example, if you look at, um, you know, in the tech world, a company like Workday, there's nothing provocative about those guys. You know, uh, 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 Dave Duffield's initials are dad. I don't know what the A stands for, but it's, you know, so he signs his emails, dad, you know, <laughs> and he and Anil wear sweaters and shit. They're like, they're like the Mr. Rogers brothers of software, right? And and they have a great company and they, their customers love them and they've been incredibly successful and they're both billionaires and they've done a great job. And, and there's nothing punk rock, neener nonner. They, they're just having a, you know, a, a conversation about um, essentially why PeopleSoft customers should move to Workday. And of course, they're having a broader conversation than that and they're evangelizing the cloud and this and that and so forth. But they're doing it in a very... Uh, there's nothing provocative about that, right? So they made that choice. They're having a, they have a warm kind of a brand that come across as genuine people. And they're, they're, their brand is, hey, we're nice guys doing leading edge shit. Convert to us, right? I mean, it's, mm-hmm. at some level, it's, 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 it's not that much more complex. And, and they evangelize the forward leading platform of the cloud and all the other stuff, right? Um, and then there's some that do it with, uh, more personality that is less in your face is just more funny. One of my favorite examples uh, in the last few years, we had Jules Pieri on on uh, my podcast, and uh, uh, her firm, you know, they they backed the Squatty Potty. Oh yeah, yeah. And <laughs> you know those ads are awesome. Yeah. And so the the, the problem or the, the evil that they are railing against is the traditional way we you and I sit when we do a number two. Yeah. And, you know, all you have to do is Google Squatty Potty and click on videos to see some absolutely legendary, unforgettable marketing that was done pretty cheaply, that went pretty viral, and, and, and makes the point of view case for why your feet should be in a certain position uh, when you do your business because it's healthier and it's this and it's that, right? And, and it, it, it makes you want to try one. You're like, oh, I didn't know I was pooping wrong, but apparently I am. <laughs> so there, my point is there's a lot of ways to deliver the point of view 
that drives the thinking from the old way to the new way, which is fundamentally how you establish a new category. There's, there's mm-hmm. lots of ways to get there. Um, it, 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 the way you do it needs to be authentically in, in the personality of the company, of the founders, of the inventors, uh, et cetera. Gotcha. And so many of our listeners are um, corporate innovators. They work inside Lars Enterprises, often with, you know, very popular heritage brands. Uh, we also have a lot of listeners that work for nonprofits and also for governments as well. Do you think that this is a practice that primarily applies to the entrepreneur leading a new company? Or is it something that internal corporate entrepreneurs can practice as well? Uh, not only can they, they should. And I'm going to make an outrageous statement. Most of why they don't is associated with a perception of risk. Hmm. Because the risk profile of a venture-backed startup entrepreneurial company and the risk profile of even a, a sophisticated entrepreneurial group within a major corporation, by definition, are going to be different. By definition. But... Um, If you think your job is to manage that risk and therefore you're going to take less risk um, than you would if you were a venture-backed startup, here's what I would assert about that. I think competing for share in an existing market category where uh, the rules have been designed by somebody else is a much riskier game than creating a whole new category designing you designing it yourself Hmm. because when you're designing it yourself you're establishing the criteria for how people should value what this whole area is really about you're setting the agenda you're teaching the world why this shit matters and how to evaluate this shit um you know look i'll give you a simple example of this this is pure genius um, we recently had um, Scott Cooper on my podcast, the managing partner at Andreessen Horowitz. And he's got a great book out that all entrepreneurs should read called um, um, The Secrets of Sand Hill Road. And w- what he's done in the book is sort of un- un- pop the hood and really show you how this stuff works. And so as an entrepreneur, what you should expect and how you should get yourself ready and, and so forth and so on. He's essentially telling you how to get funded by a firm like Andreessen Horowitz and all the inside baseball that's associated with it. Um, here's the other thing he's doing. He's setting the agenda for how entrepreneurs should think about venture capitalists. And they're buying his book to learn how to evaluate him and his competitors. He is setting the agenda for the category. And I think he wrote a great book, but it's genius on multiple levels because A, I think there's a benevolent part of this where he does break down the secrets and it's in a very powerful way that didn't exist before. And it's a book I wish I had 30 years ago. And he's doing what category uh, kings and queens do, which is they say how it's going to go. And so the reality is, if you're competing for share in a space that is designed by somebody else where they have conditioned, they have educated the consumer to think about a problem or an opportunity in a certain way and therefore a solution in a certain way, 
your, your, listen, you're a cover band. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. We all know who Bob Marley is. We don't know who the, the eighth greatest reggae musician is. No idea. Cause he's the category designer of reggae. Mm-hmm. Right. That's the fundamental question. And so if you're an entrepreneur, I think there's way more risk in losing a comparison game. As a matter of fact, look, there's evidence of it everywhere. People think the brand makes the cat, the, 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 the brand makes the company, right? Red Bull, legendary company. Um, when they attack five hour energy with Red Bull energy shot, guess what happens? When Red Bull takes their brand, because they think their brand is the shit, right? And they put it on a cola and they launch Red Bull Cola. What do you think happens? Disaster. This happens over and over and over again. And in many cases, the most legendary category dominating companies do not understand category dynamics. The category of energy drink is what makes Red Bull's brand. They are the dominant brand in a giant category that matters, that they are the principal instigator in creating and designing, right? When you take that same brand and you stick it on a Me Too product against an entrenched competitor, Five Hour Energy, you have your ass handed to you. Coca-Cola, you have your ass handed to you. Your Google's brand only matters because they dominate in search. When they take the same brand and do a Me Too strategy with a social network, they, have their, they lose billions of dollars on Google+. Their brand can't save them. The reason their brand is valuable is because they dominate a massively valuable category. The category makes the brand. If you want to sell Bibles, there's got to be Christians, mm-hmm. right? And so you've got to make Christians right? You got to make search valuable and important, right? And when search is valuable and important, you have a valuable and important company that's worth almost a trillion dollars. (laughs) Yeah. And this being the the Lean Startup Podcast, a lot of our listeners are are fond of of testing and learning and iteration. And I wonder if you think that the process of um, category design in terms of formulation of a point of view, naming the anti-category, naming the future category, is that something that could or should be tested and data informed or is it purely instinct to an opinion based? Uh, it's a little bit of both. I would say it's probably um, 80% instinctual and 20% data and research oriented. And I think we have to be very careful with the data and research that we listen to. Legendary innovators uh, have their business, their market category in their veins, they can feel it, right? They're in the field, they're with customers, they understand the competitive landscape, that it's in them. So I think being somebody who's, um, it, let me say it this way, category and innovator fit, whether they're, uh, you know, an entrepreneur or an entrepreneur matter a lot. Um, so I think there's an intuitive nature to this, right? How did Steve Jobs know at the last moment that a plastic feel for the iPhone was going to wreck it and it had to be glass. And there was this 11th hour uh, whole cycle they did and they had to reimagine the whole damn thing because he just said this plastic feels cheap and it's not going to work. How did he know that you can't focus group a legendary idea? And listen, if I had said to you 30, 40 years ago, Hey, uh, Chris, 
there's going to be this multi-billion dollar category with, with dozens of brands in it of bottled water, the shit that comes out of the tap free, the shit that in a blind taste test, 10 out of 10 people said it was water. <laughs> people are going to pay money for that shit. A lot of it. It's going to create an entire, not, it's a category that's going to be an industry. You said not possible. And if you go out and do the research and you say, hey, uh, in, in a pre-Evion world, right? Who really got this party started? Um, hey, um, would you pay three bucks for a bottle of water? 10 out of 10 people would have told you you were mental. Absolutely not. Right? If TiVo goes out and, and, and focus groups uh, the DVR, 10 out of 10 people say, I don't need a DVR. I got a VCR. I don't mind the commercials. They're not that bad. Whatever. They had to establish the entire idea of uh, being able to consume what you want, when you want, whenever you want it. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Makes sense. But if you focus group TiVo, look, look, focus group the horseless carriage. If Henry Ford does a forcus, for, 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 forcus group, yeah, a horcus group. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. And out of 10 people are going to say, hey, we, it's good, man. We're good. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay, last one. And I suspect it will uh, put a nice bow on everything for us. So uh, September, September 13th, 2019, product market fit is a dangerous idea. Tell us about that. Yeah, you know, I've become, I come to a place where I think it might be, it might be the most harmful idea of the last decade or 15 years or so. And here's why. It tricks inventors, creators, entrepreneurs, marketers into thinking there's a market that you need to fit into. Well, legendary entrepreneurs don't fit into shit. Um, Einstein said the problems of today will not be solved at the same level of thinking that created them. Legends are moving us exponentially forward. And so when you say product market fit, what it speaks to is there's a market and I have to get my product to plug into that market. And essentially the way I do that is I take my product to the market and I say, Hey, like this. And the market says, no, or yes, or I like that and I don't like this. And, but if you improve that and you made this smaller and this bigger and that rounder and this sharper, whatever. And so it, it suggests that we can outsource exponential innovation to a fucking focus group. And there's no, look, we just had the, the launch of the cyber truck. Some people laughed at it. Some people think it's genius. Some people think it's crazy. Right. Is it the future of trucks? I don't know. But here's what I do know. And it drives me crazy that you don't read this or hear this. That guy needs to be applauded because he's fucking going for it. I don't know. I don't love the way it looks. Maybe it'll grow on me. Maybe it won't. I have no idea. I actually don't really care that much about my own opinion about it. What I care about is this guy is, you know, I, you might remember those old stories of the greatest baseball player of all time, Babe Ruth, standing, in, <laughs> standing at home plate, 
pointing to the fourth row bleachers in left field saying there, right? And sometimes he did that and struck out and sometimes it went there, right? But he had to be willing to stand there and strike out after pointing to the left field bleachers, right? When, when an entrepreneur does a cyber truck, that's what they're doing. And that needs to be applauded. And even if it fails, it needs to be applauded because there's no such thing as a legend that isn't a loser. Failure is the pathway to success. We all know this. It doesn't make it any more fun, right? But it drives me crazy when people don't acknowledge the power of, um, uh, of, uh, of the example of a legendary entrepreneur standing up and going for it. And whether he's successful or not, it's the inspiration that he's going for it. That's legendary. And that's what needs to be celebrated. It, 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 we are at a time where we, are, we, we require way more exponential and way less incremental. And entrepreneurs and innovators are delivering. We live at the greatest time in the history of innovation, the greatest time in the history of technology, the greatest time in the history of medicine, the greatest time in the history of genomics, the greatest time in the history of engineering, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? Um, and so, um, this is, I think what we want to be standing for. And so this whole notion of the pathway to success is fitting in. Why the fuck do you want to do that? Really? Hmm. You want to go home every day and say, well, honey, didn't suck today. Yeah. Right. You don't want to go home and say, we went for it today. We're working on shit that's important, shit that matters to me, shit that matters to other people, shit that maybe hasn't been done before or not in this way or, or, or whatever it is. We, don't we want to be moving things forward? Don't we want to be, I love this expression, you know, you're either, you either rise above the noise or you're part of the noise. Who just wants to be part of the noise? You want to be Jimmy or Susie average? Why do you want to do that? There's no little kid in the world that doesn't want to do legendary shit. Ask any three-year-old what they want to do. They want to do legendary shit. Yeah. Start or join a company worthy of your talent and go for it. Do something exponential. Awesome. Well, I think that's a, a perfect place to wrap up. I could talk about this stuff all day, um, but I'm very grateful for, for your time and for, for sharing your, your points of view and your provocations. And I hope that everybody's heard lots there to, uh, to think about and to talk about. And if you, uh, if you disagree, we'd love to hear that as well. Um, you can find Christopher himself on the socials at Lockhead. Is that right? L O C H two H's. Yeah, that's it. Um, and, uh, the book again is play bigger, uh, about category design. And then there's niche down or niche down, I guess, if you're in America, um, which that's applying the same sort of theory to, to the sort of smaller business. Is that right? That's exactly right. It's category okay. design for, uh, what we lovingly refer to as small entrepreneurs and play bigger as category design for big entrepreneurs who are trying to raise a lot of money and get public and build a trillion dollar value. Fantastic. And your podcasts, uh, tell us about your podcast and where people can find you uh, on their favorite podcast apps. Uh, we're on all the major podcast players. You can also uh, get us on lockhead.com and two podcasts that, that, are, that are different from each other. One is a long form dialogue podcast that celebrates the uh, uh, people and companies and ideas uh, that are different. And that's called follow your different. Um, and th- that's a long form unedited conversation with somebody who's legendary. Um, and then um, lock it on marketing is short. Most episodes are 15 minutes or less. 
Uh, every once in a while, we do have a guest, but they're always under an hour. And it's one topic only, which is incredibly hard <laughs> for me. Uh, but it's one topic only around category design, around marketing, um, and sort of uh, an unpacking of that idea. Um, and so it's, it's, it's more of a masterclass uh, lecture um, series um, that's, that's very focused and very um, practical and applicable. Fantastic. And you can find us, the Lean Startup crew, at Lean Startup on all the socials and me personally, Chris Guest, at Guesto, G-U-E-S-T-O. And we'd love to hear from you what you think. So until next time, thank you for listening. And uh, don't forget to play bigger, be brave, and be legendary. Thanks, guys. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Lean Startup Company podcast. We also have a blog that goes along with this episode at leanstartup.co. If you're seeking to bring the entrepreneurial spirit to your organization, Lean Startup Company can help by providing training, coaching, and consulting services. To learn more, visit us at leanstartup.co or find us on Twitter at Lean Startup. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for listening to this conversation with Christopher Lockhead. As a bonus for making it this far in the episode, we've included some extra bits of conversation where Christopher dives into just a few more insights. So at this point in the uh, interview, I usually like to um, ask people what ideas that they have that, that are different, uh, that people might disagree with them on. Whereas I think that in your case, you're, you just need to listen to your podcast, read your books. You're absolutely full on them. So instead, just for you, Christopher, I want to have a little highlight reel of some of your favorite provocations that I've heard from you over the time. So July 26th, um, there was an email from you uh, with the titled RIP Entrepreneurs. And in the email, they included a quote, uh, I think it was from Inc. Magazine, the number of new businesses is down across the country and more and more businesses are dying than being more born. And when I read that, I thought that cannot be true. And that might just be because I'm right in the middle of the Silicon Valley bubble, um, or there could be something much bigger going on here. So tell us a little bit about the story behind this, this RIP entrepreneur statement from you. So, uh, the good folks at the Brookings Institute, who I think are incredible, um, they track entrepreneurship. And uh, so that's the first thing. And, and what they tell us is that I believe it's as of June 2019. Um, yeah, I think your email was July, July 26. So it ran about, ran about okay. then. 2019, right? So, and I, if I'm not mistaken, again, excuse me, but I'll be close to right. Uh, their their new report on entrepreneurship came out in uh, June-ish. Uh, so sp- let's just call it spring 2019. And look, this is what the data says. The data is the data that, that um, we have an entrepreneurial crisis in this country. Brookings says that three years prior to that, the Wall Street Journal declared it, the headline, the, uh, the crisis in American entrepreneurship. Um, and more companies die in our country every week than are founded. Um, um, access to capital is a problem. Brookings points to healthcare as a big problem. Brookings points to the um, state governments as a problem, uh, red tape and taxes and so forth. And all you have to do is look at the absolutely 
appalling, disgusting, uh, abhorrent ways that the state governments chased Amazon around to get one of their two or three or 16 or who knows, whatever, new headquarters, whatever that fucking means, right? And at the same time, um, small businesses are um, not getting formed in our country. And so um, there is a real problem of entrepreneurship. The data is the data. You can go read it. I found it stunning as well. When I read that article in the Wall Street Journal, I had the exact uh, um, reaction that you had, Chris. But the reality is we have a crisis of entrepreneurship in America, and it is bad. And it is bad for a bunch of reasons. Number one, I am somebody for whom entrepreneurship is not a theoretical discussion. Uh, when, when, when somebody dares to go out on their own to try to make something happen, that act of creation, uh, for some of us, entrepreneurship is a way um, up in the world. Many people in Silicon Valley, you know, when Mark Zuckerberg starts Facebook, if it fails, my assumption is nobody misses a meal. But hey, God bless him, right? And for many of us, best I can tell a disproportionate number of us, entrepreneurship is not a way up, it's a way out. When I was 18, nobody was going to bet on me. I got thrown out of school. So I either work a manual labor job or I start a company. That's it, right? And I think many entrepreneurs, that's our story. And so I think it's a individual tragedy that more people aren't using entrepreneurship as a way out of poverty and struggle. And, and look, people who are going to be successful anyway, God bless them, be entrepreneurs too. We live at a time when it's the greatest time in history to be an entrepreneur, and yet entrepreneurship in America is in a lot of trouble. In addition to that, entrepreneurship and entrepreneurial companies small businesses are the drivers of job growth. It's not GE. It's not GM. It's not IBM. It is entrepreneurial companies as defined by the U S government as companies with uh, fewer than 500 people, a disproportionate amount of the new patent applications come from small and high growth companies. So whether it's job creation or innovation or productivity improvements or many other uh, massive factors that affect the ongoing economy and success of the United States of America and frankly the planet, entrepreneurs are the drivers of those things. Those things aren't happening. So if you want to talk about it at a micro individual level or you want to talk about it at a macro level, it's horrible that this is going on. And Chris, I'll take it one step further. To make it worse, we have a federal election coming. We are treated now to nonstop discussion about the coming presidential election in the United States. And to the best of my knowledge, and I've watched most of the, uh, the, the Democrat debates, and I follow the president on Twitter, okay? I don't hear Democrats or Republicans having a meaningful conversation about entrepreneurship in the United States of America. On immigration, we are not talking about how do we build a super highway for entrepreneurs who want to come here. Eric Yuan, the incredible founder of Zoom. Uh, I had him on my podcast not that long ago. If my memory is right, Chris, nine times it took him to get into the United States from his home country of China. 
nine times. The guy has created $25 billion of value in Zoom. And prior to that, he was the head of engineering of WebEx, right? So we're having all this discussion about our southern border. Great. Let's have a discussion about our southern border. Absolutely. Where's the discussion about immigrant entrepreneurs? And why aren't we going out and seeking them? Mm. America is supposed to be a beacon for these people. I'm an immigrant to this country. You're an immigrant to this country. That's why I came. Yeah. <clears throat> and so I just, I guess my point in all of that, Chris, is there is um, an entrepreneurial discussion that is not happening in our country. And um, I think it's a mistake. And I think it's a mistake at an individual level for many, many, many thousands of people. And at a macro level, I think it's a fucking disaster. And to me, it's unconscionable that our political leaders uh, are not having this discussion. And one of the things I don't understand about President Trump is, and I don't want to get political, but he's an entrepreneur. Why isn't he the champion of entrepreneurship? He's the champion of the economy. He's the champion of the stock market. We're, we're at phenomenal levels of unemployment. That's fantastic. I think he deserves a lot of credit for that stuff. So I'm, I'm not trying to be biased. I'm trying to be balanced. But where's the conversation on the Democrat side, on the Republican side about entrepreneurship? Gotcha. So I'm going to keep moving forward. So uh, your latest um, new piece of content is something you created together with Eddie Yoon um, for the HBR. Um, tell us a little bit about the, the work you've done there and the new opinions and insights that you've generated with, with Eddie. Well, first of all, I think Eddie Yoon is the man. Um, Eddie Yoon, to the best of my knowledge, is uh, the most published author in the HBR on category. He is, without question, the category guru, sensei um, to the Fortune 100. Um, And I just love his mind, and I think he's an extraordinary guy. And I'm stoked to be working with him. We've written a few things together. This is actually our second piece for HBR, and we also collaborated with our friend Nicholas Cole on this. Here was the thing we wanted to look at. Um, In Play Bigger, we introduced this concept of a data flywheel, and the idea being a simple one. Every transaction you and I have with Amazon fundamentally uh, makes Amazon smarter about you and I and smarter both at a micro and a macro level, right? And their ability to use that data to uh, drive their business and on a personalization level with you and I as individuals and on a macro level, they just, they just know more and more. They know more about what people want to buy digitally than any company on the planet. And every single transaction that just that that flywheel just spins and spins and spins and spins and spins. So one of the ahas is that if you're going to design and dominate a category and you start to look at businesses today, many of the companies that have done that over the last couple decades and many more of the newer companies that are doing that, you take Airbnb as an example, right? Um, they are first to get a um, data flywheel to scale and monetize it effectively. Because that piece is really important, right? You have to do shit with the data. You have to make shit happen. Right? You, have to, you have to be able to capture the data, analyze it, 
take action on it, et cetera, et cetera, right? <clears throat> so um, if you want to compete today with Airbnb, not only do you have all the normal category dynamics with trying to compete with the company that designed the category and now dominates it, you also have to deal with the fact that they have a massive data flywheel that is going to be impossible to catch. A, a, a simple example is um, um, uh, Disney Plus, the new streaming service against Netflix. Look, uh, if you have kids, are you going to buy this fucking thing? You probably are, right? But to say that Disney is going to be able to put um, Netflix out of business because they have the content that Netflix doesn't have, I, I don't think that's... Um, a valid argument anymore because the reality is the Netflix data flywheel is extraordinary. So if you start to look at it, you start to notice that this is true with a lot of the category queen, category king uh, companies today. And so what we did here was we wanted to begin to understand um, how important this was. We felt like it was important, but we wanted to get some, some empirical data on it. And so Eddie created a team of researchers to go out and take, uh, Fortune publishes a list every year of the, uh, I believe it's 100 fastest growing companies. And they went back, if I'm not mistaken, over a 10 year period. And we built a criteria, criteria for evaluating um, on the fast grower list, who has a data flywheel and who doesn't. And so there would, could be an best. So we bucketized the, companies that had them and then um, uh, uh, market cap per of revenue. And here's the aha. Companies with a data flywheel that dominate categories are 5x more valuable than companies that don't have the data flywheel. Hmm. And so Eddie and I now believe we are at a point where um, data is more valuable than cash because it's more monetizable and it, it'll spin it, that in the flywheel and thus create ongoing value in ways that cash can't, right? Cash right now is, I don't know what, what, what prime interest rate is, but you can do better than 3% on your data, <laughs> right? The other radical idea that sits as part of this, because the first question you then ask is you say, okay, well, how do I build a data flywheel? There's a bunch of ways to answer the question, but the most interesting answer to me right now is don't think about your product or service as a product or service. Think about it as a platform that, that fires data. So here's the aha. Here's the genius of Musk. When you think of um, Tesla as a car, you think of it in a particular way. When you say the Tesla is actually not a car, it's an iPhone with wheels. You start to think about it differently. Well, first of all, it has a whole bunch of sensors, right? So it's tracking. It tracks more data about what you're doing with it than your iPhone probably tracks. It certainly tracks a shit ton, right? Um, so there's sensors in everything, right? There, what, what Joe Pine, the genius, who wrote the experience economy says, if it can be digitized, it can be customized. So the minute your car is, a, is an iPhone, well, guess what? You can customize all kinds of things in there, right? So you can create a whole new experience in there, which now gives um, uh, 
tests all this data about how people want to customize their cars and what they want to have working in it and what they use and don't use and so forth and so on. All that stuff emits data, right? And so um, when you reimagine your product or service and make pretend it's an iPhone that has the potential to emit a, a shit ton of data and information, that's a way to begin to think about what you do in the context of how do I create uh, a data flywheel. And I think, I think you could do it with the growth of IoT and all this other stuff. I think there's a lot of things that are going to get connected that we never thought were going to get connected. You know, are we going to buy shirts that are going to have some kind of digital sensors in them that tell us when their color fades or how often we should walk? I, I don't know, but we're probably going to be wearing smart shirts. So your shirt is a data platform to create a data flywheel as opposed to a consumer product that gets purchased and you never hear from that customer again. I think that's going to happen. This digital connection with the consumer of our service or product is going to happen in, in many, 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 many categories, which opens up the platformization, if I could call it that, opportunity of products and services that heretofore you couldn't think of in that way. And if you think about them in that way, and then you think about a data flywheel, um, I think you got some really cool shit to think about. <laughs> yeah, fascinating. I look forward to reading that one. Um, have you got time for a couple more or have you got a bounce? No, I'm, I'm fine. Okay, cool. So July 13th, uh, email or maybe a tweet, I don't remember, from Christopher Lockhead, personal branding is bullshit. Do you remember that one? Tell us about that. You know, when you give me the dates, I, I, it sort of feels like, um, Mr. Lockett, where were you on the night of this? I'm like, oh, shit. Like, no, um, exposing myself as a stalker here. I need to <laughs> so here's why I think personal branding is bullshit. Um, we live in a world where many have confused attention and contribution. Um, we live at a time where people's self-esteem, some people's self-esteem, is in part driven by how many likes they get when they post a picture of their cat on Instagram. And I believe that we are at a point in time where for a meaningful percentage of the population, there's been a flip that's occurred. And the flip, uh, can I tell you a quick story about this? Go for it. The aha around this? Because I think it makes the point more powerful. So uh, this past summer, I had a dear friend visiting from the UK with his wonderful uh, wife and their, their two kids. And I hadn't seen them for a while. And I hadn't seen the kids in a very long while. And the last time I saw the kids, they were little, little. And now they're like, you know, early to mid teenager -y types, 13-ish, 16-ish, somewhere in that kind of range. So we want to set up a nice experience for them and enjoy our time with them. And we just, we live close to the beach. And so we're going to go to the beach. And we're going to have a fire on the beach and we're going to barbecue weenies and have s'mores and watch the sunset. It's going to be awesome. So we set all this up. My wife's incredible. We set it all up. <clears throat> the group of us go out to the beach. We're sitting there. And while we're watching the sunset, sunset and the ocean and the weenies and all the stuff, right? Guess what the kids are doing? On the phone. Right. They're paying no attention to any of it. And so me being me, I rib the kids about it and say, hey, there's this fucking sunset over there. Maybe you want to look at it. It's kind of pretty. 
you know, et cetera, et cetera. And um, I woke up the next morning and I had this aha. Um, for some of us, many of us, our digital experience is, a, is our secondary experience of life or a secondary experience of life. And our primary experience of life is a physical experience. We are now at a point in time where for certain people, the digital experience is the primary experience and the physical experience is the secondary experience. And so the reason I'm rubbing the kids is for me, the phone is an obnoxious interruption of a sunset. For the kids, the sunset is an obnoxious interruption to whatever life they're living digitally. You follow me? Yeah. And so uh, there's this, you know, giant aha about the value of data in a world where our primary, for many people, our primary experience is a digital one. And to get back to personal branding, um, what I realized is um, that digital affirmation is more important than them playing uh, you know, some soccer and a friend of them saying, hey, good game or, you know, good shot or good whatever. That's what that is. Yeah. And so as a result, we have this powerful confusion. And the confusion is around the distinction of contribution versus attention. And most people today value attention over everything else. So personal branding in a lot of ways is, is bullshit because it's it, what, his, what it has become is how do I get the most followers? Uh, yeah, followers on Twitter. Yeah. Right. And so that's one piece of it. The next piece of it is by definition, it's completely inauthentic. Right. So my assertion is don't worry about your digital brand or your personal brand. Worry about your reputation. Wor and reputations come from results. Reputations come from authenticity. Reputations come from 30 years of delivering massive value, you know, giving a shit about people, right? And so don't be concerned about a contrived, uh, image because that's really what personal branding is about it's about projecting an image right don't be an actor be a human being and focus on contribution focus on results focus on value focus on creating things right we talk you talk about mike maples start or join a company worthy of your talent go do that shit and share stuff you know uh, we had Val Afshar on from Salesforce. He said he's got a huge following. He's an internet celebrity, right? And he said for most of his career, he thought when he learned something, you would just learn it and kind of keep that to yourself. And now he realizes when you learn something cool, the power is in sharing it, right? And so this is a guy that's developed a massive quote unquote personal brand by not doing some contrived bullshit but, but he's an enthusiastically curious and interesting guy and he shares curious and interesting shit. Mm -hmm. And so you got to love him. And he does it in a fun, playful, 
way. And he's an introvert and he's finding, he's doing it and, and you got to love him, right? That's not a personal brand. That's not some contrived bullshit. That's not some, some veiled attempt at, at, at attention, right? It's, it comes from a place of Vala wanting to do legendary shit, wanting to share shit, wanting to learn shit and, and wanting to be in the mix, right? In a way that's cool and interesting and fun. And I think makes a difference to people. Yeah, that's what matters. And so we just live at this time where I think people have gotten very confused about all of that. And I think it's a shame. And I think it's time we start to look at um, contribution, reputation, delivering things of value, um, um, and so forth. And, and, and don't worry about your fucking personal brand. If you do those things over time, you'll get something that is way more valuable, which is a reputation. And that's actually what you want. 